welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We are going to get back into our uh, verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Been out for a couple special Sundays. We're back now in Luke 24, Luke's resurrection chapter. And boy, do we have a sweep of scripture to cover the uh, encounter on the road to Emmaus. It's a long passage, so pray for me. And, uh, but we're going to see a marvelous story of the revelation of who God is. So let us hear together the word of God for the sake of time today. I'm going to teach the entire passage from verses 13 to 32, but I'm just going to take a couple of verses to give you the sense of the passage, and we'll open all of it together. Let us hear the word of God. Luke 24, verses 13 and 15, to 15. Luke writes, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And finally, verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous human encounter with the risen Christ But this is about so much more than resurrection. How could that be possible? Oh, but there is something deeper here. I pray that you'll help us to see it and understand how you work even in our lives today in the same way you did for these. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Like I said, we are continuing in Luke's resurrection chapter. And uh, up until now, we haven't had an appearance by the risen Christ in Luke's narrative. Uh, the other gospel writers have noted his appearances in the garden to Mary, uh, to Mary and to the other women. But this is Luke's chance to talk about the appearance of Jesus. And he alone gives us the details of this story, possibly because it was told to him in person by none other than uh, one or two or both of the men. Cleopas, mentioned in verse 18, is mentioned by name by Luke, probably because Luke interviewed Cleopas and got this story from him and gives us all the detail of them meeting Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So uh, it's a marvelous story, uh, and it is about one of the many resurrection appearances of Jesus. Do you know how many times Jesus appeared in his resurrected body after uh, he, he broke out of the tomb? Now, there are at least 10 
appearances by Jesus after resurrection moment to different groups of people or individuals until he ascended to heaven. So um, it, it, there was no lack of times where Jesus presented himself to people, sometimes individuals, sometimes a, a large group, as many as 500 on a hillside in Galilee some days after his resurrection. So, so much evidence for the resurrection of Christ. But it's interesting, in all those appearances that the Bible records, not once did he appear to anyone of consequence. In other words, he didn't appear to anyone with human, of human power or fame. Uh, nobody of consequence. And some people have remarked on that and wondered why Jesus didn't make some different places of arrival when he rose from the dead. Some people would think, well, wouldn't Jesus have right away gone and, and suddenly appeared to all those chief priests and Pharisees that had condemned him to death, appearing right in the middle of their meetings? They were not the enemies or the critics or the skeptics or the condemners of Christ. They were the followers of Jesus. They were common people. They were the despondent women in the garden right after seeing the, the stone rolled away and not knowing what had been really, what had really occurred. They were the defeated disciples in an upper room late, late that night without answers but filled with fear. And they were these two nearly nameless disciples of Jesus. They were common people to whom he appeared in those times. Secondly, there were people who were almost all in crisis over Christ. They were in crisis. Think about Mary Magdalene running from the tomb, believing someone had stolen the body of the Lord, the, the worst crime imaginable, and she had no idea where they'd laid him, and Christ appears to her in her crisis of confusion. There were the other women who had come to the tomb and seen the rock rolled and looked in and, and, and saw the body was not there, and angels had, had suddenly stunned them into into an awareness of, of the fact that Jesus was not there, and they had no idea how to put all that together. And so Jesus appears to these uh, women who were in, in various stages of shock, and he reveals himself to them. There, of course, is the uh, unknown place, but the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to Simon Peter sometime on Resurrection Day, even before he appeared to, to the eleven. And Jesus and Peter had a private conversation. Jesus appearing to Peter, Peter, who was in a crisis of guilt and ministering to him. He appeared to all the disciples that night and many times afterward. What were they grappling with? What was their crisis? A crisis of fear over what had happened and what they feared for their own lives. Then, of course, there was a disciple named Thomas who was alone in his grief somewhere else in Jerusalem without the others. And he was de dealing with his crisis of doubt and who made a special appearance to Thomas, the Lord Jesus, walking through the wall and letting him see the wounds in his wrists and his side. So he appeared to the common believer and he appeared to people who were in crisis. And lastly, and, and, well, not lastly, but here in our narrative, he appears to two nearly nameless disciples who were in a crisis of disappointment over Jesus, as we shall see. The third thing that's common to the people that uh, received a personal revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, as you look at the, the records of Scripture, not only were they all common people, and not only were most of them in crisis, but they were all changed. They came to believe in the risen Lord Jesus, believe in all the promises of the word of God fulfilled, and they were caused to follow him. So all of that flows in the story. 
Now, because Jesus is risen, remember this, he's alive and active today, isn't he? And he can still come to you today. He can still manifest himself to you today, not in that same resurrection moment, but as we're going to see through the revelation of who he is through the word of God. He will come to you today because he's alive and living, and his word is living and active, and he will come to you. If you're not a believer today, but you're here under the hearing of God's word, you're here for a reason. You're seeing, seeing or watching me online for a reason. It's because God has an appointment for you to come under the hearing of his truth, and he is here to meet you today and to draw you into an encounter that could lead you, like these people, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He could be drawing you today in that encounter. But if you're a believer you may be in a crisis of your own, a struggle, a battle, needing to know more about the Lord that you worship. He will deepen your knowledge of him through the word of God as it's open today in the same way that he, that he deepened the knowledge of those two men through the word of God that he opened on the way. Emmaus is kind of the model for how the risen Lord Jesus meets the struggling believer, and he does it through the truth of the scriptures. Many people look at the road to Emmaus as another resurrection passage and a story of the resurrection of Jesus, but actually, resurrection is not the main theme in this encounter, in my opinion. It only appears, in fact, Jesus only appears, and they only understand that they're seeing the resurrected Jesus in one verse. That's verse 31, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and what happened immediately after that? Boom! Jesus vanished. So there wasn't much of a resurrection encounter in these verses. No, it's not so much about the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of his body. It's more about his revelation from the word. This is all about how Jesus opened the scriptures and enlightened or illuminated the minds of those who needed to know about God. So bear that in mind. This is a passage more about revelation from God's word than just about the miracle of the resurrection of Christ's body. Now I'm going to talk about four things that I observed as I went through this passage. These are two people who are in a crisis, and I'm going to talk about their spiritual crisis, and we'll examine that and see what Luke reveals about it. Then secondly, I'm going to touch on God's answer to their crisis, and that was how Jesus handled that, how he confronted them, and then how he revealed the truth from the scripture. Then I'm going to talk thirdly about the impact of what Jesus taught them, how it impacted them spiritually and personally it was a deep impact and then finally i'm going to talk about their true life relevance of how jesus encountered them through truth today for you how can you encounter god with the same inner power don't you want your heart to burn within you when the word of god is open oh it still happens it's the privilege of the believer and i want to touch on how that will happen for you as you seek him today under each of these, it's going to be pretty simple. We're going to make quite a few observations. We'll walk through every verse, and we'll, we'll, we'll make some observations. And at the end of each of these four uh, points, if you will, I'm going to give you one principle in a sentence to kind of wrap it all together. That's where we're going. First of all, let's talk about the spiritual crisis that these two men 
faced the two disciples. Go to your text, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, Luke is very specific. Again, he got the details, I believe, and many others do, from Cleopas in an interview sometime after this had happened. Luke put together his gospel out of interviews with people who had been part of the story. So, the, the details are important. Luke makes sure we know that this happened that very day. What day was this? Well, it was resurrection day. It was resurrection day. Early in that morning, Jesus had risen from the dead, and then an angel had appeared at the tomb and had rolled away the stone, not so Jesus could get out, but so we could look in. And the great resurrection narrative began to happen. And the women came to the tomb and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and ran back with a message to the disciples. And Peter and John went running to the tomb and looked in and saw the grave close just as they were, Christ's body having passed right through them. And we have all of those events. So this is late in the afternoon on that day, which was resurrection day, that very day. And two of them were going. He says two of them. So we ought to know that something about them. They were members of a group. Two of them. Who is the them? Well, you go back and what we taught you last time we were in the passage. It goes back to verse, verse 9. When the women returned from the tomb. Here says Luke 24, 9. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Where did the women go? From the garden they went back to wherever the disciples were gathered. Maybe the old upper room. Maybe somewhere else. The eleven were there. The disciples minus Judas who had taken his life. And then it says, and the rest. So there were more than just the 11 disciples gathered in that room. When the women came back, came back, excuse me, and talked about the angelic vision. And talked about the fact that the body wasn't there. And all of these people in the room heard it. And the implication of Luke in verse 13 is that these two individuals, these two people on the road to Emmaus, had been part of that group. They'd been there early resurrection morning. They had heard the women's story about the empty tomb and, and the angels. But verse 11 says, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So these guys had been in that room earlier on resurrection morning. The women had come running in with the story of an empty tomb, the, the angels being present there, and they didn't believe it. This is later in the day now. They've left that room. The 11 perhaps are still there or have gone their way as well. But these two guys have decided to walk away from Jerusalem and go back to their little town, which was a town named Emmaus, so small that no archaeologist knows where it was, where it is today. Emmaus meant warm springs, by the way. This is the name of the town. And it was seven miles a walk of seven miles. By the way, that's from downtown Spokane Valley to Liberty Lake. That's the distance they walked that afternoon, late in the afternoon, going back to Emmaus. They were walking away from a dream. They were walking away from all they had believed about Jesus. They had perhaps lingered in Jerusalem for some time listening to Jesus and becoming his disciples along with the others. But they had descended into disappointment and they were walking away from Jerusalem, from all they had believed about Jesus and going back to their old life. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a crisis being disappointed with what, all, all that you believed about Jesus and being tempted to just walk back into your old life. We're going to see some things. These things, of course, was probably everything that had happened in, in the last grouping of days. We know it as Passion Week. 
Everything that had occurred from the great triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just days before and all the great hopes of people about Jesus Christ being the Messiah and the deliverer of Israel and his hope that he would deliver them from Roman domination in days. And then all the other events, the turning of the crowds, the disappointment of the people, the, 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 the intrigue of the priests, and the sudden trials of Jesus and and the sudden sentence of Pilate, and before they knew it, they saw their hoped-for Savior being executed as a common criminal on a bloody cross and dead. So those were the things they were talking about. And the Bible says that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, I just love how Luke in his understatement, drew near and went with them. Can you see the beauty of this? These are just two guys. They're nearly nameless. We only have one name, Cleopas. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, walking away from all they had believed in utter disappointment, talking about all that could have been and all that confused them. And the Lord Jesus makes his way up alongside them. Now, Jesus had been a lot of places that Easter morning. And being the glorified risen Lord, boom, 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 he could move anywhere <laughs> in a nanosecond, right? And in his wonderful plan for them, boom, he appears on the road behind them from wherever he had been before. Shoop, there he is. And he slowly makes his way up to you're, you're someone, someone other than you, but I will tell you this, the Bible says you'll be a very different you. How about that? <laughs> that, that he would have been recognizable right away to them because they'd spent time with him. But the Bible says in verse 16, something unusual was done by God, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What's going on here? Well, the best explanation is that God himself supernaturally blinded their eyes. The Greek is what the Greek experts call a divine passive. It means this was done to them. Their eyes were blinded. They were kept from recognizing Jesus. Their minds conversation for hours on the road and into the house that they eventually ended up in later in the... Because I'm going to be giving that to you. So... This is, again, these are just observations about all of this. So they're walking along. Jesus is listening. Verse out of their mind, but he'd also lived every moment of it. And he has God outside of time, he was still there. I mean, it's just, of course he knew. But he wanted them to voice their crisis. He drew it out of, out of them with questions. He wanted them to talk about their disappointment and their crisis and so he wants them to bring it out. I just love the, the, the beauty of this moment. They, uh, he asked, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So they stop on the road when he asks that question. Partly because they're overwhelmed with grief, but I think also partly because they're stunned that he would be so out of it that he didn't know the greatest event that had happened in their lives in Jerusalem. It says in the next verse, then one of them named Cleopas answered him. And uh, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now I'm going to tell you what, even though that's translated into English, I can see the sarcasm in it. Can you? Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem that has no idea what's been going on? How'd you like to be Cleopas? You get your one chance to be recorded in the Bible. 
and you're sarcastic toward the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord. I'm sure he's probably in heaven today talking to Jesus saying, you know, I had, I, you gave me my one chance and you had to make it that work. So the sarcasm comes out and I just love this. Jesus draws it out further, playing the innocent. And he said to them, what things? Just love it. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, I can actually see the irritation in Cleopas's face and voice. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You might even insert a little Greek there. Lunkhead. I mean, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. It's so obvious. And then he talks about the man that they had followed and the one they had believed in, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. He's going over every, all of his experiences. Perhaps he'd followed Jesus for some months or maybe even some years. And he became convinced that Jesus was the prophet that Moses had said the Messiah would be, one unlike any other, who taught like unlike any other, who taught with greatest power and authority. And of course we know that Jesus did. And the man may have hung on his words for years, and now he's disappointed in the death of Jesus. And then he talks about the fact that he was mighty indeed. That's the, referring to the whole lifestyle of miracles that followed Jesus. Miracles followed him everywhere, healings and, 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 and all kinds of mighty works. And those were the things that the prophet said would also accompany the Messiah when he came. And so this is code for basically stating Jesus of Nazareth, the one who performed all the deeds and spoke all the words before God and all the people that proved to us that he was Messiah. Everyone was talking about it. Hundreds of thousands of people in the city were talking about it. Just a week before, hundreds of thousands had welcomed him into the city. How could you not know these things, he's saying. And we knew them, and we believed them. But, look at the next phrase. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. That happened, and crucified him. That great story of hope had been suddenly shattered by these events they never expected. Now we get to the language that talks about their crisis, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, he did the deeds, he spoke with power, he had a compelling life. He fulfilled all that we thought the prophet said the Messiah would do. And we thought he was the Messiah. And we hoped he was here to deliver Israel. And then he gets, ends up being condemned by our own leaders and put on a cross as a criminal. And now he's dead. They are in a crisis of disillusionment. They had believed. And now their belief was destroyed. Now... You have to understand a little bit about what they had believed Jesus was going to do. And I've told you this so many times as we've gone through the gospel. I won't make it long. But the Jewish people had read the Old Testament from the viewpoint of their religious context and from the viewpoint of the kind of Messiah they were hoping for. And they were hoping for an earthly Messiah who would deliver Israel and who would bring Israel into its kingdom age. Now the Bible does say that a Messiah will come and will take Israel into its kingdom age. That's yet future, folks, in the Bible's description, and I've taught you that many times. But they missed the fact 
that before the Savior came as a ruling king, he would first have to come as a suffering servant and a suffering Savior. So when Jesus actually went to the cross, he was accomplishing God's will for his life, but in their minds, this was all an abject failure. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. Many people have talked about this. I'll give you one quote from a commentator named David Gooding that summarizes it. Death and resurrection form no part of their concept of Messiah's office and program, which is why they had not really taken in what Jesus had said about his coming death. Jesus had predicted his death many times, and the Bible says they just didn't get it. They were hoping for a Messiah who would break the domination of the Romans by force of arms, a Messiah who managed to allow himself to be caught by the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Romans and crucified before he had even begun to organize any guerrilla operations, popular uprising, or open warfare. What use was he? In other words, they saw him fail in what they thought Messiah would do. If the Old Testament prophesied a liberator Messiah who would not die but be triumphant, Jesus was disqualified. He had died. After that, it was almost irrelevant to talk about resurrection, end of quote. So they were in this, they had a misunderstanding of who Messiah was going to be and what God was going to do. Now they go on, and they even add here some, another part of their disappointment but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, that didn't come true. And yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. This is when they were in the room earlier in the day, and they heard this. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us, John and Peter, who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And in other words, they were saying, not only are we d disappointed that he wasn't the Messiah to deliver Israel, but he had said some strange things about rising from the dead on the third day. This is the third day. And so far, we haven't seen him. See, the women had said that the tomb was empty. The women had said that the angels told them Jesus was risen. But these men hadn't seen him. They were a little bit like Thomas. Remember him? They, he was told that Jesus had risen by people he could trust. He says, unless I put my, my hand in the nail prints, I will not believe. They were of the same mindset. And therefore, they were in dejection and disappointment. They were disappointed with what God hadn't done. That was the heart of it. Now notice, Jesus doesn't handle them gently. He doesn't commiserate with them. He doesn't say, well, I can understand. Uh, no, he confronts them. Take a look at the next verse, verse 25. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's direct language. Oh, demonstrates that he's upset. He's, he's upset with them. Foolish, great Greek word, uh, it meant without sense. Literally, that's what it meant, or without a clue. And he calls them slow of heart. You ever hear of bradycardia? Some of you that may have some heart issues know what bradycardia is, unfortunately. It means a slow heartbeat. 
Slowness of the heart rate, usually fewer than 60 beats per minute. <laughs> That's pretty serious. That comes from the Greek word bratus, which is used right in this text. He says to them, I can't believe that you are that ignorant of the promises of God. Because the next verse says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He rebukes them. He's basically saying, listen, there is no reason for you to be disappointed in what happened to Jesus of Nazareth because it was all there in the scriptures and promised in the scriptures. This all happened exactly according to God's plan. If you'd only read it, you'd know. If you only understood it, you wouldn't be disappointed. And you are slow of heart. You won't even believe what the Old Testament said about him, and you wouldn't believe the testimony of the women. So he rebukes them. Now we're going to get into his answer next, but let me summarize. I told you I'd make observations and then give you a principle for each of these. Under the spiritual crisis they faced, here's the principle that maybe puts it in a sentence. They didn't understand what God was doing because they didn't understand God's word. That's the whole first section here. They didn't understand what God was doing or had done because they didn't understand God's word. This is foundational to how everything flows out of this passage and what Jesus is really there to do. God was working out his perfect plan. They were disappointed in what he was doing because they didn't understand what his word said. And I'll tell you right now, that's always true for every spiritual crisis in the life of every Christian. When they're upset, disappointed, angry over the will of God working out in their life or not working out in their life, it, it always goes back to a misunderstanding of what God's word says about how he works in their life. Or a slowness of heart to simply live by faith in what God is doing. Keep that in mind because at the end here, I'll show how that happens in our lives. So that's a long description of the first point, the spiritual crisis they face. Let's go next to, to the second, God's powerful answer to their crisis. Jesus rebukes, but as he always did, then he follows with healing truth. And he leads them into what they needed to know, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now what happens here is Pastor Jesus holds a Bible conference. He puts them through a super seminar on the entire Old Testament. The phrase here, Moses and all the prophets, was kind of Jewish shorthand to describe the entire Old Testament. The whole thing, from the first book of Moses, which was Genesis, starting in the Genesis 1-1, all the way through the prophets, ending with in, in Zechariah and Malachi, and all the great mountains in between. How did this happen, you say? It says all of that. How in the world did all of that get explained by Jesus? Commentators have no agreed-upon idea how all that happened. I wonder if... If Jesus on the road to Emmaus didn't create some kind of time suspension, this is just a thought. We're shoom, they were in this time suspension, and Jesus takes all the time needed to fill their minds with all the truth from the Old Testament. I don't know, it's a guess, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, he told them everything they needed to know from the vast storehouse of the Old Testament about him. Pastor Jesus held a Bible conference. I'd give up my seminary education just to have had that seven-mile walk. I would have learned more than I ever learned in seminary, and I learned in seminary. 
but not like that. Now, what did he teach them? Well, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 39 books of the Old Testament, a lot in there. But the, the great point of that phrase is that all of the Bible revolves around truth concerning Jesus Christ. And throughout the Old Testament, well, the, the Old Testament speaks concerning Jesus. Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, Let us mark in these verses how full the Old Testament is of Christ. We are told that our Lord began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book. He spells son, S-U-N there. In other words, Jesus Christ, everything about him, who he was, why he came, how he lived, what he taught, what he did, how he died, why he died, how he rose, how he ascended, who he is today, all of that and more is the central son of the whole book. You could put it this way. Jesus Christ is the son, S-U-N, of the solar scripture, solar system of the scripture. Let me put that again. I wrote it down and I still can't say it. Jesus Christ is the son, S-U-N, of the solar system of scripture. You need to understand that the Bible, in, in, in essence, always comes back to teaching us more about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about you. By the way, I know it's a disappointment to some. I thought this Bible was God's love book to me. No, it's God's great book about his son. It's not about life principles that you can, lose, you can use in a, in a seminar-like fashion to have greater results in your personal life. No, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a book of spiritual ministries or exciting prophecies and other things that are not connected to Jesus. No, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Ra goes on, so long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. But once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. I repeat, he is the son of the solar system of scripture. So when you understand that and you, and you teach the Bible, be looking for how it reveals the Lord Jesus, not simply the New Testament in retrospect, but the Old Testament in promise and in beautiful looking forward to him. And so Jesus talks about this. Now I want to point out that this was part of their problem. They had been reading the Bible as if it had been all about them. What do I mean? Well, the Jewish people read the Bible to suit their religious system. So many do that today. They read the Bible to suit their religious presumptions. What did they know about themselves or think they knew about themselves? They were Jews. Therefore, they were God's chosen people. That already gave them a leg up on going into heaven. They also had been given a massive amount of laws in the Old Testament. And they'd added some more of their own. That means they had the inside knowledge of how to order your life so you could earn your way into eternal life. Not only could you earn your way into eternal life, if you were righteous enough, you could actually work your way up in the system of the future kingdom. And you could even be, uh, be close to the Messiah when he ruled. That's why they had the arguments right up until the day Jesus rose about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God. 
So they believed that the Bible was really about the fact that they were pretty much all the way there, or almost all the way there. They kept the law to earn their way in and to work their way up. They were looking for an earthly kingdom to shine under Messiah's rule. And they were under the rule of the Romans, which made every day a day in which they wanted the Messiah to come and end the earthly suffering and bring them into earthly rule. What they didn't really sense was a need for a savior. Remember, chosen people, already with the inside knowledge of the law, keeping the law well enough to earn their way in and maybe work their way up. So they didn't have broken hearts over their sin, and they didn't understand their need for a savior and a sacrifice. It was all there in the Old Testament, but their teachers taught them around those verses to create a system of works and religion. And so that's how they read their Bible. They expected Jesus to come and fulfill all that and reward them for all that. Then he ends up on a cross and dead. So they go from, from that religious vision to disillusionment. And that's why they're walking away from Jerusalem. Because their religious dream got shattered. I meet a lot of people, and I have been one of those people, who looked at God to do certain things in my world according to the way I was reading the Bible. And when he didn't do them, I was tempted to walk away to walk out of Jerusalem, to head back to my old life. Because I was actually looking for the wrong God, looking for the wrong actions of God. So they were religious. They read the Bible that way. They missed their need for a Savior. They end up being disillusioned, and now they're in this crisis. What should they have been? Well, if you read the Bible, hopefully this will be true of you. They should have become more broken as they read the Bible and realize their deep need for a savior. That's why the laws were put in the Old Testament, not to give them a way into heaven, but to show them how perfect they would have to be to ever have a hope and, and to re make them realize there's no way we can be as perfect as this law requires. It was designed to break their hearts, to make them know that they needed a substitute, someone else to be a savior for them, and to draw them in hope for somebody like that coming. Well, fortunately, that's exactly the kind of God we have, and that's exactly the person that Jesus was going to be. Yes, a soon reigning king, but before that, a suffering savior first. And so, beginning with Moses and, and through all the prophets, Jesus showed them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. Interpreted is interesting. Daramanuo is the Greek word here, and it meant to interpret or translate or to explain very clearly. And you may have heard another word, hermeneutics, some of you. Hermeneutics is part of what I practice as a Bible teaching pastor. Hermeneutics is the science and art of, by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. I spend hours doing that for you every week, going into the passage and practicing the principles of Bible interpretation so I can figure out what this says and tell you what it says and apply it in terms of how, what it means and how it works in your life. Jesus her, did a hermeneutic of the Old Testament here. He opened it up as a good Bible teacher, good Bible preacher. He opened up the entire New Testament. Now what could he have done? And, and we don't know exactly all the words that transpired, but like I said, Pastor Jesus held a Bible conference. The subject was the Old Testament. And the focus was, what does the Old Testament really say 
about who Jesus was and why he came. He's correcting their deception. Now, where would he have gone? I think he might have gone through three different threads of teaching. This is just me thinking out loud. If, if I were to do this as a Bible teacher and somebody asked me, is Jesus really in the Old Testament? Or isn't that just a, a book for, the, for the, the Jewish experience? And the New Testament is the only Christian book. By the way, that's what most Jewish people believe today. The Old Testament is their book. The New Testament is an invented book by Christians. And it's not scripture. The only, only the Old Testament is scripture. So suppose I was challenged by a Jewish person today to show me Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Here's the three pathways I would take. And maybe these were some of the ways that Jesus took when he hermeneutic the scripture to them. First of all, there's promises. There's too many to go over in which a savior is promised for Israel. But there's two bookends that I would mention. The first is in the very beginning of the scripture in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of Moses, and then the last is toward the end, the second to the last book in the, in the scripture is Zechariah. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, for example, Moses wrote the, wrote the first promise of a coming savior. When Adam and Eve had sinned, God said to them, I'm going to send the seed of a woman, special woman, virgin born, a virgin born person. And he is going to crush the head of Satan, although Satan will bruise his heel. That was the first prophetic image, the first promise of someone who is going to come. And his heel would be bruised by the devil, but he would ultimately crush the head of the one who had sent humanity into sin. That's a prediction of only one person in human history. It's the Savior, Jesus it's the first biblical appearance of the great promise thread in Scripture. There's so many others in between. I'll just go to one of the last ones, Zechariah 12, 12.10. It talks about one day in the future yet to come when Israel is under great, great trouble in, in the tribulation. God will use that trouble, the day of Jacob's trouble, to cause them to finally be broken and to look to him for who he really is. And when Jesus returns, the Bible says one day, Zechariah 12, 10, Israel would look on him whom they had pierced. I'll tell you, Jewish people have come to Christ on that verse because that marks only one individual in history and in the, Jewish, in, in the narrative of the scripture. He had to be pierced. He had to be crucified. So there's promises that he might have touched on bookending the scripture. Then the second thread of thinking might have been what I would call portraits. There are so many in the Old Testament. They are images that we see that relate and portray Jesus. They're shadows that are described that can only make sense if they refer to Jesus in his earthly ministry, his death and resurrection. Of one who came in history, this Messiah had to suffer and he came as a substitute, a willing substitute and sacrifice. Maybe by that time, Jesus was even interjecting and saying, so you see that story? Yeah, yeah, we, we've known it all our lives. That's, that's Jesus. That's Messiah. And their hearts were beginning to be stirred. Maybe Jesus talked about the bronze serpent in, 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 in Numbers 21, when the, the people rebelled and God struck them with, with, with serpents, the snakes that went throughout the, 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 the community and bit them and they were, they were suffering terribly physically and many would, were going to die. And, and then he told Moses, make a bronze serpent, bronze being an image of sin, and set it on a pole. And if people looked to that serpent that was raised up on a pole, 
they, they, they would look to that bronze serpent and live, Numbers 21, 8, and 9. That parallels and foreshadows the cross. Jesus himself even mentioned it in John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus connecting himself to one of the greatest Old Testament moments. God was going to make him who knew no sin to be sin on their behalf. And if you look to him, lift it up. Moses lifted up the bronze servant on a pole. Jesus says, I'll be lifted up on a cross. They couldn't have missed that. When the first time they heard it, they did. But now when the risen Jesus is walking along the road and he, he opens their mind, he, 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 he brings this all out, their eyes began to widen further and their minds and hearts began to fill. So there were promises that he may have touched on. There were portraits that he may have touched on. And finally, way too many of these prophecies he may have touched on. Hundreds of prophecies. Dozens that were fulfilled in the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. But just a few. He might have touched on Zechariah 9.9. They saw that happen in real life when Jesus entered Jerusalem just a, a week before on the back of a donkey exactly as Zechariah 9.9 predicted. Jesus had fulfilled that prophecy might have reminded them through the psalm, Psalm 69, that the Messiah would come and to Israel and he would be hated by Israel without a reason. What had just happened for seven days? He'd been hated without a reason. He'd been contempt in false trials, put to death as an innocent man. And then finally he might have gotten to the mountaintops of Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 6, which talked about what Jesus even suffered as he went along the way with the crossbeam on his back, where it says that the Messiah be one who gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to those who plucked out his beard, and who covered his face with spit. It gets that specific. Not to mention Psalm 22, which he would have opened to them which literally talks about the experience of crucifixion centuries before it was ever devised. Quoting the very words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talking about how he'll be sneered at and mocked and his bones pulled out of joint, his hands and feet pierced, even his clothing divided by lot. Everything they had heard about that terrible day, Jesus was showing them was part of God's plan. It wasn't a defeat. It was a fulfillment, all done for them. And finally, to the great mountaintop of Isaiah 53. And you want to talk about prophecies. This is a great collection of the gathered prophecies that talked about Jesus who came as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. That was Passion Week. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces on Calvary's hill. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All those words must have been ringing from the lips of Jesus and echoing in the hearts of these men. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Isn't that true? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Oh, the Passover lamb. 
And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We went over that just a few weeks ago. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But then resurrection is talked about. When his soul shall make an offering for guilt. That was the first ministry of Jesus. But then he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will not only die to, to, to be our guilt offering. He will rise again. He'll prolong his days. He will see his people. He will rise again. He will stride into heaven. The ascension is there in verse 10. And then 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. So Jesus moves through all the mountain range of the Old Testament. Perhaps he ended at the great heights of Isaiah 53. By the way, did you know that Isaiah 53 is not allowed to be read in the synagogues in the nation of Israel to this day? It's not allowed. And did you also know that thousands of Israeli Jews are coming to believe in Yeshua as Messiah when someone sits down with them and simply reads them Isaiah 53. Thousands. Because they suddenly have an Emmaus experience. There's, many of them say, who put Jesus in my Old Testament? He's, it all makes sense now. He had to come and suffer first. And they're trusting him by the thousands. He might have said over and over again, there he is. You see, there he's doing what he had to do. There's Jesus. There's the story of his troubles. There's the moment of his dying. There's the reason for his suffering. There's the plan of God. There he is. And that's why he had to suffer and die first and rise. And their eyes began to widen even more and their minds and hearts began to fill even more until them, finally at a certain point, it all made sense. Just like these people coming to Christ in Israel today. He helped them connect the dots of the suffering and death of their long-awaited Messiah to the picture they had missed. And they understood that really, they really did need a Savior and he really did have to suffer like that and rise. So all of that must have crystallized in those hours. God's powerful answer to their crisis. Pretty powerful, wasn't it? Let me give you the principle that summarizes that, and then very quickly we'll go to the last two. The principle under this is that God helped them understand his words so they could understand what he was doing. Isn't that clear? He didn't need to let them in on any secret. He simply showed them what was already in the word of God, and it matched their confusion and solved their crisis. Don't you think he still does that today? He does it in my life all the time. Well, let me kind of bring this, the, the scene in the story to its, its fulfillment in verse 28. The third point I would see is the deep impact of God's answer. I'll tell you what, that must have been the shortest seven-mile walk they ever took. You know? It probably seemed like it was over way too fast. They were in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. They didn't know it. They were just talking to a guy 
who had shown them things from the Bible they'd never seen, but now it all made sense. And so they drew near, verse 28, to the village. They got to Emmaus, to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. Don't you laugh how the Lord Jesus led him on a little bit? He acted as if, as if he would go further. Why did he do that? My guess is because he wanted them to ask for more. He wanted them to take a hold of their truth and ask for more. And you know what? It's, I've seen over time as a pastor that you always get as much of God as you want. He who seek me, seeks me shall what? Find me. If he seeks me with all his? Absolutely. And I've seen people wrestle with issues for years, but they never want God's answer. And you know what? They're still wrestling with that issue for years. Others I've seen who have come and they've humbled themselves and they said, I'm in crisis, but I'm open, pastor, to hearing whatever God has. Take me to the word. I don't care if there's a sting to it. Oh, and change comes. Well, he tested how much more they wanted. Oh, they wanted more. They urged him strongly, verse 29, saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. I'll tell you, one of the impacts of the word of God when God answers issues in your life is you want more of God, right? You just want it. So they went in and he was at table with them, verse 30, and he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And verse 31, the most famous verse in the encounter, and their eyes were opened. Their physical eyes. You see, their spiritual eyes had already been opened. Their, their new mind, their understanding of Scripture had already happened. The great ministry of God called illumination had already occurred. They knew everything they needed to know. And now their physical eyes get open and they see the risen Jesus. And it says that they recognized him, epigonosco. They, they really, fully, completely recognized him. Physically, they recognized him. And then, shoo, he just goes. Zoom, he's gone. Which proves to me that the point of this whole passage is not about the miracle of the resurrection. It was about the miracle of revelation that the word of God brings. So not only do you want more of God when you discover him in the word, but number two, your heart burns within. Notice what they said, verse 32. They did not say, whoa, that was, that was, that was him. He, he's risen. We saw a resurrected body. Was that not supernatural, dude? Notice they don't say a thing about what they saw. What do they say instead? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That was the greatest impact. That's what they said to each other. Wow. Has your heart ever burned within you when you studied the Bible and made a divine discovery? Or when you've been under biblical preaching and the Spirit of God opened truth to your heart that you had not seen but you know is what God put in there? Did not your heart burn? You know what it feels like. Now that brings me 
to my possible answer to the question as to why did God keep them from recognizing Jesus throughout this whole encounter. He didn't do that to anybody else, did he? Not really. Most of them, he wanted them to see him in his risen form because they needed a moment where they saw a miracle. Why did God keep them from recognizing Jesus till this moment? My only answer is perhaps because he didn't want to thrill them with a miracle for a moment, but with the scripture for a lifetime. He wanted them to understand that the answer to all of their crises was not a momentary miracle encounter with Jesus, but it was the opening of the word under the power of Jesus. And they could have that that day or any day after that for the rest of their lives. That's what I think he was really after here. And they could have it for their future walk. And you know, you can have it today. It's something that theologians call the doctrine of illumination. What's the doctrine of illumination? It's the doctrine that teaches that the Holy Spirit is present today. He dwells within you as a regenerated person. And part of his ministry is to open the word of God to you. To that new mind in that new man or woman. And to show you what this means and how it reveals Jesus. Jesus even promised this to you in John chapter 16. He said to the disciples earlier that week, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. In other words, everything he tells you is ultimately going to point back to me. Because the Bible, everything it tells you ultimately points back to Jesus. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and disclose it to you. That was a promise, not just to the apostles, but to every believer. How does it happen? doesn't happen by sudden new revelation. I must caution you. Oh no, this canon is closed. This Bible is complete. It is filled with the truth that God has for you. Oh, no, it comes when you come to what God has already communicated and given to you, and you ask the Spirit of God to reveal what he said and what it means. You do it through study. You do it through meditation. You do it through interaction, and you experience it through preaching and teaching. You already have experienced Emmaus. If you're a born-again believer, under the ministry of the word. What's the principle to this? Third, their hearts burned when they came to understand God's word and see all that he was doing. Let me close with the fourth. Thank you for your patience, by the way. Only be a minute. The life relevance for us today. I'll just put it in a principle. God will help you understand his word even today so you too can understand what he is doing. These guys... Are, are, like I said, Emmaus is the model for how God works through his word in hearts in crisis today. No time limit on that. You say, well, Jesus was standing right in front of him. I will say to you, who's living inside you? Thank you. God Almighty. Who's been sent for you? The Holy Spirit Almighty. He's here today. He's working in your heart right now as you hear these things and see these things. Oh, he'll work. So are you in a spiritual crisis? 
Well, I first of all make sure you're not looking for the wrong God because that's part of their problem. You may have been looking and reading for this, this Bible to, to, to find a God designed after your own selfish agenda. You've got to surrender that. You want God to speak to you? He will. He loves you as much as he's loved anyone. He bought you. Just as he bought those two disciples, confused and unbelieving and hardened of mind. And he found them. Didn't he? He found two guys in crisis, walking a road, and he caught up to them. And he opened the scriptures to them. Believer, if he found you when you were dead lost, you were, you were lost outside of Jesus Christ, and the good shepherd found you, and the gospel broke over your heart, don't you think he'll find you now? You're one of his sheep he knows exactly where you are, knows exactly what you need, and he'll catch up to you on the road. And he'll speak to your dear heart. He always does. Always, always. You, my friend, can have an Emmaus moment over and over again in your Christian life if you look to him through his word. 